Hello and welcome to The Farcast here at Shadron State College, where we're interviewing Aaron Field today, who is an assistant professor in the Rangeland program. Uh, Aaron, you are coming to us from North Dakota State University, where you got your master's and your PhD. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your past life before coming to Shadron. Oh, sure. Um, there, that was very Minnesotan. Uh, <laughs> so I grew up in uh, Pelican Rapids, Minnesota, a small town in western Minnesota. Um, and then I headed out to North Dakota for, for college in Jamestown, sort of the center of the state, studied biology there, was interested in wildlife. Um, w once I got done with that degree, I realized if I actually wanted to work with wildlife, I probably needed to know something about where wildlife live. Um, so I had to learn a little bit more about plants. Um, there was an opportunity for a master's program at North Dakota State where my wife was actually in school already. Um, so that's where I went. And I worked on my master's degree in natural resources management where I was comparing some monitoring techniques um, in grasslands in western North Dakota. Um, about halfway through that program, luckily enough, somebody else quit. And my, uh, my advisor at the time said, you know, I really need to hire a PhD student to finish this project. And I raised my hand. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was. Um, so my PhD work uh, was in range science, um, looking at a variety of things, but, but basically plant communities on prairie dog towns would be the, the more okay. general description. Um, and uh, well, really, while I was there, I... Um, I was, I was on a research assistantship, so I was there to do research. Uh, but I heard about this program, this certificate in college teaching um, that North Dakota State offered. So uh, I decided I'd go take a teaching class and, and yeah. see what that was all about. Um, turned out I liked it a lot. Uh, finished out that certificate and started looking for teaching jobs. So, so it was pretty, uh, it was kind of serendipitous then that that position opened up and but did you did you want to be a scholar? Did you want to teach, or you just wanted to work with wildlife, and the job sort of found you? Yeah, I really didn't even think about teaching until I took the a course in education, and and what I realized there is, hey, there's a science to this as well, um, which you don't learn much about in a in a typical you know graduate program, especially well maybe not especially, but in the sciences you typically don't hear about that, and you most folks aren't really encouraged to pursue that. Um, I was lucky enough to have an advisor who supported that um, um, rather than maybe focusing a little bit more on the research. Um, yeah, and then when a position opened up out here at Shadron, I got about three different emails from various people that I knew who said, hey, have you seen this <laughs> job in Nebraska? No, I haven't, but I guess I'll take a look. Had you had any connection with Nebraska before? Absolutely not. Oh. No, uh, we we I've traveled through Nebraska a few times, um, but no connection to Shadron whatsoever. In yeah. fact, uh, I drove out here to interview, and I drove out in the dark. So then I woke up in the morning and I wasn't in a cornfield, and I was really confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, this that region. Shift. Yeah, this region is a little different than the, the majority of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. So in preparation for, for this podcast, um, you had mentioned that you're interested in how human land use influences grassland ecosystems. Talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? <laughs> give, us the, <clears throat> give us the high level view, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, big, a big thing. Um, 
grasslands make up a huge, huge portion of our uh, of the Earth's terrestrial land mass, basically. So if you're not in an ocean, there's a decent chance you're in a grassland. And if you're not in a grassland, you're in shrublands or deserts, which qualify as rangelands as well. What kind of percentage is that? Uh, varies a little bit depending on your definition, but about half. Okay. About half of the Earth's, you know, terrestrial land mass. Um, and so since it's such a huge, huge portion of our, you know, of our world and um, provides so many valuable what we call goods and services, um, it's, it's just something that's really important. And, and we put more and more pressure on these grassland systems as population growth increases as uh, we continue to convert them into other things like croplands or houses or parking lots. Um, so that human land use thing can mean a lot of things. It can mean grazing. It can mean, uh, it can mean you know, energy development. It can mean uh, conversion to something else. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a broad area of interest, and it, which makes it kind of fun because I get to teach – well, here I get to teach many different aspects of that. What, what, what are some of those different aspects? I mean, within the grassland ecosystem, um, what are, I, I suppose, I mean, I'm coming at this as, an, as a newbie. What, what are some of those different things that, are, that involve, I guess, devoted to this region or dedicated to this region? Right. Um, <clears throat> so the grasslands around Shadron and really the grasslands in the United States that still exist mostly exist because either we decided not to farm them or we tried to farm them and that did not go very well. So we put them back into grasslands. Um, so what you'll see a major, uh, major use around Shadron would be grazing, um, grazing with livestock. And, and, um, I didn't grow up on a, on a farm, at least not in the, any major economic sense. Um, but I've always had an interest in livestock. I've always sort of liked cattle. Um, so for me, uh, having that intersection, I mentioned wildlife earlier, having that intersection of livestock, livestock and, and some economic um, production with wildlife in a way that's, um, that they can coexist is, is a lot of fun. Um, so here, here at CSC, I get to teach a course, um, got, to actually, got to actually create and teach a course called Grazing Ecology. Um, and in that, we don't entirely look at livestock grazing we also look at wildlife grazing um insects uh to from insects to elk basically um mm. and and what that what influence that process has on um both plants and then our abiotic features so our soil or water features um and that's that's been a lot of fun because there's there's a lot of ways that we can change uh or or, or modify Management. There's a lot of ways we mod can modify our land uses that don't take that land use away, um, but allow us to do it in a in a in a in a more sustainable. It's a little bit of a buzzword, but in a more sustainable fashion. Great. So you mentioned creating your own class, uh, working with the students here. What are some of the ways you engage with them, uh, make the information interesting to them? That's that's. Uh, I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's more successful than that. <laughs> um, 
so that class in particular, I think was was really successful because I I was lucky enough to have a small enough group. Um, students in that class actually designed and taught their own lesson. Yeah. Um, so they were able to choose a topic. Um, they were able to choose a topic. Uh, we actually spent a little bit of time on pedagogy, which is one of our favorite words in, in higher ed. Um, we spent a little bit of time on, you know, how can you deliver this in a way that students actually learn, that your classmates actually learn. Um, and then they were able to, to choose a topic of, of that they were interested in uh, within that greater framework. Okay. And then deliver that lesson. And, and that, I think, was, was uh, really uh, engaging for students. Um, <clears throat> students reported back that they really enjoyed that. Now, I can't do that in every class. Um, but <clears throat> in a larger class, uh, some of the things that seem to really help is uh, – asking questions rather than, you know, necessarily giving answers. So uh, when we got up into the new building last winter, um, they I said, okay, what kind of technology do you need in this classroom? Let's, we, need, we have a budget for technology. What would you like? And I said, you know, our, our, our whiteboard's technology. <laughs> so uh, sure, why not? So I've got a half dozen whiteboards in the room. And so rather than talking at students, I'm able to present them with a challenge or present them with a question and let them spend that time working on that. Okay. Um, if you're anything like me, when I was a student, um, I would much rather sit in my chair in the back of the room and doze for 50 minutes. Um, but I think we could all agree that that's not a particularly good way to learn anything. Mm -hmm. um, so anything I can do to break through that to break through that, you know, dozing student in the back row like me, um, I think is really helpful. And, you know, initially students aren't always super appreciative of that, right? Because you've, you've taken away a really good chunk of my nap time. Yeah. <laughs> but I think uh, being surrounded with other faculty who are doing the same things, uh, students are a lot less resistant. They're, they're a lot more engaged. They're a lot more willing to participate and things like that. So... Um, that's been one of the really good things about working here is, um, students are, are ready for that. Yeah. Well, we just had a conversation earlier today about the hands-on opportunities. You know, you just step out the back door of the Rangeland Center and you're in the field to do some real field exercises. Uh, I'm kind of curious, what would be the amount of time, you know, you guys spend inside in the lab, in the classroom versus out in the real world lab? Uh, how do the students react to those variations? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we're, we're located in a great spot. I, I always tell people that uh, if, I was gonna, if I'm going to teach about grass, this is a really great place to do it. Um, and, and a lot of what I end up talking about is grass. You know, What is it? How do we identify it? And, and what do we do with it? Um, so like you mentioned, that range complex, we can step out the back door and we've got a natural gradient. We start at the base of the hill and we have a, a pretty heavy invasion of uh, invasive cool season grasses. And as we work our way up the hill, um, we work our way through a few different ecological sites with different native plant communities. Okay. Um, so rather than spending a bunch of time driving a van, you know, to different field sites, I can walk up this hill and, and I've got it. Um, so uh, we are limited somewhat by weather, obviously, here's sure. northwest Nebraska. But what, what I like to do is get out as much as possible first half of fall semester and first second half of the spring semester um 
So oftentimes what it'll be is, you know, 10 or 15 minutes in the classroom, go out and do something. Yeah. Um, and uh, the last few years, I, I structured my habitat inventory and analysis class so that we do most of the inventory in the first half and most of the analysis in the second half to take advantage of weather. Uh, the last few years, we haven't had any bad weather in the second half, so we've pretty much been able to be out the entire time, yeah. um, which cuts in a bit to the what I want to do for analysis, but I think the students actually appreciate that. I suppose that if it helps get them in that right frame of mind. Uh, one other question I've got in terms of the living laboratory is, uh, my understanding is after our 2006 wildfire that burned all the trees off of Sea Hill, we left a portion of the hill um, as is with the burned trees where they fell. Is that still the case? And do you use that that area? So we do still have uh, some deadfalls in various stages of decay. Okay. Um, and it has been interesting. Now, I wasn't here in 2006, so I wasn't able to, other than pictures, I haven't gotten to see what right. that hillside looked like before. Um, but we're in a, we're in a fire-adapted system here, um, meaning that the, the Pine Ridge uh, plant communities should be able to recover fairly quickly after fire. Okay. Uh, now, the 2006 and 2012 fires, um, because of a variety of factors, some of them man-made or human-caused, um, some of them not, were particularly intense. Um, so we ended up losing a lot of that ponderosa pine canopy that normally would not have been lost okay. in a fire. Um and that also can do some things to our grassland plant communities. And uh, most of the grasses of this system, you know, you'd recover within a year or two, assuming you have decent precipitation. Okay. Um, but when you have a fire that's that hot with that many heavy fuels, uh, we did see some changes in that plant community. And you can still see some relics of that up there, which is fun to show. Yeah. It, I mean, it, is fire important to those ecosystems? Yeah, fire is critically important. Um, <clears throat> fire is critically important, and, and we have uh, – there's there's some really interesting literature on this, but <clears throat> spent about a century trying to prevent fire um, for a variety of reasons, whether it's timber maintenance or just simply fear of fire. Um, what we're beginning to learn, I think, is that we can't prevent fire forever, and if we continue to try like we have been – uh, we just make fires worse. Um, so the, the 2012 fire, for example, was described by some of the firefighters who were working on it as the worst wildland fire that they had ever been on. Wow. Um, people had worked in the West for 30 years, um, <clears throat> partially because of weather. It was hot, dry, and windy, and partially just because of the fuels. Um, so the trees were growing so close together, right? Um, and they, there was so much... So much biomass to burn uh, that that fire was much more intense than fires historically usually would have been. Hmm. So, yeah, I had something. I had no idea about that. Um, Aaron, you kind of alluded to this earlier that that you really kind of fell into the love of teaching. Um, so, really, you just wanted to be involved with wildlife, and as part of that, was working with. The grassland. Um, when you initially went to school, what did you want to do? So I actually have a lot in common with a lot of our students here in the range program is when, when I walked into my first year in a biology program, 
I thought I wanted to be a game warden, uh, a conservation officer. And um, <clears throat> so I, I worked a couple of different jobs that were somewhat relevant to that. And then I finally got a job working for the Corps of Engineers for a summer, summer position. And part of that job was I had to write tickets. Um, and after probably my first or second ticket that I had to write, and this was just simply, your camper has been parked here too long. Okay. You have to move it. I said, I, I, it's not what I want to do. I don't like this. I don't like the enforcement. I don't like the confrontation. That's not for me. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> from that, I transitioned to, to looking at, you know, more natural resource management and, and strictly biology positions rather than uh, on the enforcement side of things. Um, but a uh, couple, couple offshoots on that. Um, that has been really helpful for me as I advise students now. Yeah. Um, not so much I try to talk them out of anything, but I say, okay, if this is what you're interested in, I go get a summer job where you do this. Oh, sure. Um, one, it might tell you, yes, I love this. I want to do this forever. And two, it might say, you know what? That's not for me. I'm really glad I didn't you know, spend 10 years of my career on that, um, which has been really helpful. And then uh, for me personally, I, I wanted something where I – worked outside where I got to work in, you know, in whether at one point it would have been forests, but after I fell in love with grasslands, um, it's become grassland systems. And, <laughs> and that eventually morphed into, you know, I want to work outside when it's nice out. And then I want to be able to go back inside when it's not. Well, so. that's you're getting older. That's, <laughs> yeah. And that's what happens. Well, it's good to have that yeah. flexibility. Well, and you want that climate control. Yeah, <laughs> once in a while that, that comfy office chair uh, is helpful. Well, and in, in the, with the wonderful building you're in too, I mean, yeah, that's mm -hmm. certainly one of the jewels of the campus. Yeah, I, I like to joke with um, prospective students when they come and I'm showing them one of the classrooms. I say, I, I prefer the classrooms where... Uh, the window, there either isn't a window or it faces to the north because if the windows face to the south, sometimes there will be mule deer sparring on that hillside and they're much more interesting <laughs> than me. So, Oh, we need some video of that. Yeah. yeah. That would, that I might haven't be. seen any mule deer sparring out here. Yeah. yeah. I uh, saw some rabbits fighting once. Probably the, the biggest mule deer buck I've seen since I've been in Shadron lives over there. We've got it all. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> he knows he's not going to get hit with any stray right. bullets over yeah. there. Uh, you kind of uh, talked about that a little bit, but obviously hunting is a big part of your life, I'm assuming. Yeah, and, and I was actually thinking about this this morning as I snuck out early to look for sharp-tailed grouse. <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, a lot of people, for a lot of people who work uh, with wildlife, hunting was their gateway to working with wildlife. They, they work with wildlife because they like to go hunting. And then <clears throat> looking back for myself, it was actually the opposite of that. I, I started hunting because I wanted to see wildlife. Hmm. Um, so <clears throat> started with an interest in, you know, African mammals and, and marine biology and things like that. And then that shifted into um, spending more time outside with um, with wildlife that inhabit the Great Plains. So. 
And did you get a grouse this morning? No grouse this morning. <laughs> my, my miles per grouse are, are very, very high. Um, so. uh, we understand you breed and train American water spaniels. Yeah, so uh, living in Minnesota, um, uh, I decided that I wanted to, to find a dog. I wanted to find a hunting dog. Um, and I'd grown up with labs, um, as many people do. They're the most popular, most popular sporting breed in the, in the country, and, and for a lot of good reasons. Um, but I, I decided I wanted something a little bit smaller. Um, I wanted something perhaps a, a little bit flashier in the uplands, um, something with a little bit more spaniel type. And I started reading up on these things, and, and I came across this sort of obscure brown dog from Wisconsin, the, the American Water Spaniel. Um, and so I've spent about the well, <clears throat> about the last seven years uh, trying to learn about it as much as I can about those dogs and 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 how I can get the most out of them. And they're a very rare breed um, as far as as breeds go. So I, I've made it sort of a hobby to look at breed preservation. Um, I'm involved with the American Water Spaniel Club, which is the AKC parent club for the breed. Um, so I spend a lot of time, a lot of time training during the summers and, and as much time hunting with them as I can in the fall, um, which is really, I, I, I usually end up hunting a lot more for the dog than I do for myself because personally I didn't really need to walk several miles over hills this morning, but, but the dogs appreciated it. So how much time goes into, I guess, yeah. training one dog? Um, I think the mistake that people make is that training ends. So mm -hmm. I, I've completed training this dog and I can, I can move on. Um, and that's really never the case. You're always, you're always working on something and <clears throat> It's a lot of time. That's that's about <laughs> the best way to <laughs> that's succinct. Best way to describe it. You know, if you just want a dog to be your buddy and to go hunting with you, there's really not that much time that needs to be spent. You know, you get your basic obedience down. You get a dog that comes back when you call it, and you go. Um, I've pursued a few uh, more advanced hunt test titles with with a couple of my dogs, and um, that ends up being fairly time consuming. You really should be working every day hmm. um, and some of the setups are pretty time consuming what are those tests like where you, you shoot a pheasant and two ducks and basically they have to wait until all the birds fall and they have to get them in order that you shoot them or i mean what all uh, roughly yeah um so there, there's a variety of different organizations that sponsor hunt tests um they're non-competitive so you're competing against a standard um the so so my dogs have uh, passes at least in in AKC retriever tests and AKC spaniel tests. So a spaniel test they have to find birds, flush them, and then retrieve them. And a retriever test is is purely retrieving, um, more challenging retrieving, but retrieving. And you don't want them to eat the bird. E eating <laughs> eating the bird is is frowned upon. I suppose so. So. I have no experience training dogs, certainly not for hunting. Give us an overview. What goes into training a dog to be a reliable hunting animal? Um, <laughs> a library of training books. Um, <laughs> uh, so 
there are a lot of different schools of thought, a whole bunch of different uh, procedures that, that folks can follow. Um, my interpretation so far has been they can all work as long as you follow them. Okay. Um, so I, I, I've been shifting. There are, there are, uh, where was I going with that? Um, my, my philosophy has shifted more towards, uh, attrition rather than correction. Um, so learning through repetition, Okay. More so than learning through uh, penalties or punishment. Um, so there, there, there are a few fantastic trainers who will sell you their DVDs on how to do this. And of course. <laughs> and I'm by no means an expert trainer. I, I, I've worked, um, I've worked a fair bit with with a couple of professionals in South Dakota who helped me uh, help fix my mistakes. Uh, okay. So. Um, for me, it's it's get out, set something up where they're where they're working on a certain concept, and and then we repeat that in different places, and and that seems to be effective. And I suppose every dog is different and responds differently to the to the training. Absolutely, every dog is different, and then uh, also th- there are breed characteristics as well. You know, so uh, there was a. There was a, a British saying that I'm paraphrasing a bit, but you can train. They said you could train one golden retriever in the time you can train two flat coats in the time you can train one Labrador. Um, and the American Water Spaniel, uh, it, it's just a little different, little different animal um, than than say a, say a Labrador. This is a, one of the only American sporting breeds. Um, Developed in Wisconsin in the 1800s and early 1900s, and this was a dog that was originally bred to retrieve for market gunners. Um, so these were people who would go out and shoot a couple hundred ducks a night, um, and they were usually hunting in a small boat. So they needed a, a, a small dog that wasn't going to tip over the boat every time it went it got in and out. They needed a dog that was tough because they were in Wisconsin in the fall and winter time, um, and they needed something that <clears throat> had enough drive to continue to do that. Now, drive and cooperation might not always go hand in hand. Um, so, so you need to keep that in mind, too, when you're, when you're working with these, any breed, really, is, the, like you mentioned, an individual. Individual dog is going to act differently than its you know, litter mate, but then also there are breed characteristics as well. Sure, sure. So, so we've got hunting, we have uh, training and breeding of, of the American Water Spaniel. What are some of your other interests outside of work? I, I want to say, when you first came to CSC, I saw that you maybe were helping with the wrestling team or something like that. So what, what are some other things that you enjoy doing, Aaron? Yeah, so I was a college athlete at, at Jamestown College in the NAIA uh, division. Um, I played football as a freshman, wrestled all four years. Um, had to make a decision as to whether I wanted to wrestle or play football. There was just really no possible way to do both. Um, and just happened to get along with the wrestling team a little bit better, so I went that route. Um, <clears throat> so I competed there all four years. Um, when I got to North Dakota State, 
I was kind of, I was looking for something to do. You, I, it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't actually have free time. I just thought I did. <laughs> um, so one day I stopped by the wrestling coach's office and I said, Hey, do you need a spare body? Sure. Come on in. Um, so I spent <clears throat> two years there, uh, with a division one program, um, as a wrestling room dummy, basically. as a wrestling room <laughs> dummy. Yeah. And, and actually got a lot better during that time. Um, kind of wish I would have done that earlier in my career. Um, so then when I got to shatter and I, I basically did the same thing. I spent my first, first year, first season, uh, in the room helping out wherever I could. Mm -hmm. Um, since that time I ran out of time, I, I wish I could spend more time sure. up there, but, um, well, yeah, Daniel and I both have some, uh, we, we have some professional ties to, to work. And I, I mean, I'm not speaking for Daniel, but, uh, wrestlers have such dedication to their sport. Yeah. I, they'd be, I, I think the season begins in October and, and, you know, and if you're going into nationals, it doesn't end until after St. Patrick's day. And so, I mean, that is an incredibly long time and you're having to cut weight and, and all those other things. So it's, certainly a sport that requires a lot of dedication. There's an awful lot of dedication and, and there's not a lot of show, right? Shattern State has excellent attendance at their wrestling, at their home events. I've been really impressed with that. Um, really great group of fans. But a lot of what happens with wrestling is happening where the only people who are watching are other wrestlers. Um, it usually doesn't look like attendance at a football game or attendance at, at, uh, at a volleyball game, but... Um, yeah, and, and add in some factors. You add in injury, you add in a weight cut. Um, it, it really turns into a challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other interests outside of work? Uh, vast majority of my outside of work time right now is is dedicated to raising kids. I've got I've sure. got three girls. Um, Allie's five, June is three, and Laura just turned one. Um, so we try to find fun activities as much as possible. Um, so, uh, so far both June and Allie like to fish, which has been a lot of fun. Um, Allie has picked up a little bit of a botany bug. So she likes to go out and identify gra mostly flowers. Um, she's interested in different flowers. So she's been teaching her, uh, <clears throat> teaching her teachers at the CDC, a few of our <laughs> of our native wildflowers as they walk around. Um, so we spend a lot of time with that. Um, Do you get them started on the scientific name straight away? <laughs> I but you started me on, right? Yeah. The pretty purple one. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I'll skip the Latin names for a while. Um, <laughs> I like to talk in class about, you know, why – why I'm making you learn Latin names, and, and it's because there is one correct Latin name, and that's it. There is only one, where there could be a dozen common names. We were talking about puncture vine when we walked in here. Um, puncture vine, goat's head, devil's thorn, there's probably a dozen more that I'm missing. Um, but the beauty of a common name is it's, it's, it's typically descriptive. Um, yeah. So if I tell you uh, puncture vine, you probably know what I'm looking for. When I'm talking yeah, about. I mean, if it's not the phrase you typically use, right. it's usually you know, some context clues. Right. Sure. Now, now I'll, I will. Most of our Latin names are description t descriptive too. They're just in Latin, so sure. uh, <laughs> makes it a little trickier. Okay, Aaron. So now we've we've reached the portion of of the podcast where we 
Just do quick hitting questions. So the first thing that comes to your mind, and there's only five of them. There's no right or wrong answer. Uh, the first one is, what is a favorite movie of yours? A favorite movie of mine. You know, I, I should uh, answer this by saying I have watched probably three movies since I had kids because you can't actually start a movie and finish it. Unless it's like a Disney yeah. film. Or so, so, so right now, yeah, so right now I think I would probably have to say Moana because that's the <laughs> most recent movie I've watched the entirety of. How many times? Many. <laughs> I feel um, your pain. First concert you attended? Oh, first concert I attended, I believe, would have been Trampled by Turtles. Oh, another good one. You know, yeah. I've never heard of that name. What are they? What are the kind of music uh, do they have? The pseudo bluegrass. Yeah, they have like okay. a mandolin player, yeah. and I yeah, think you'd like them. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, they're a Minnesota band. I think they're out of Duluth. So okay. Ooh, the coldest spot on the face of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> I went there for a football game in 2008, and I, I think I just finally warmed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right next to Lake Superior. It's beautiful. Yeah. Aaron, if Shattern State College wasn't the name, what would you name the school? Mm. Well, I, I actually have an answer for this, too, because I went to Jamestown College in North Dakota, but it is now known as University of Jamestown. Um, not quite sure why they made the name change, but they did. So I would say University of Shadron. There you go. We're moving right on up. <laughs> now, I, I think we kind of uh, get an idea of what the answer to this, but I want to ask it anyway. If you could estimate, I assume in the number of thousands by now, but how many times have you been up to the top of Sea Hill? It depends how you define Sea Hill. If you mean, I'm going to say the whole ridge. Okay, if yeah. it's the whole ridge, I was up there three times yesterday. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, maybe the better question is how many grass types are up there? Oh, well, that, yeah. that that's a good question, too. I mean, I'll put it this way. I walked out to flag plants um, for a plant ID section in habitat inventory and analysis. And 50 plants takes about 30 minutes. Hmm. So there are a lot. Um, I, I hate to put too close a number on it because Steve Ralsmeyer would know better than me, but um, probably a couple hundred species. Wow. Yeah. So normally we'd, we'd, we'd kind of be closing up, but that really triggers me to ask, where, where was this question, Alex, you wrote? That, uh, when I look out at my backyard, I just see grass. And I, I love going up in the hills and that, and I take photos up there. But I generally just see grass here, maybe a different grass there. I don't see that variety. What do you see? So... There's a uh, Aldo Leopold, uh, known as the either the father of wildlife management or sometimes the father of modern conservation. Um, he wrote a Sand County Almanac in in the 1940s, and very very quotable gentleman. Uh, one of Leopold's quotes, if I can if I can get it right, what is uh, one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds, okay? Um, <clears throat> meaning that the more you learn about these things, the more you see the negatives. Uh, so I, I, try to, I try to fight this, and I try to warn students to avoid this too, but um, I spend a lot, way too much time spotting invasive species or 
um, noticing reduced plant vigor or erosion features that shouldn't be <laughs> there's a, things like that. So if you've ever watched uh, Dances with Wolves, um, it's filmed in the middle of a smooth brome patch, um, which is an invasive cool season from Eurasia that would not have been there at that time. That bothers me a lot. <laughs> um, so I spend too much time doing that, but <clears throat> but I also really appreciate, especially, you know, plant identification or at least plant recognition. Plant identification means I know what this is and I can tell you why. Plant recognition is simply I know what this is. Okay. Um, once you realize how many things are actually out there, you start to see more of them. So instead of just seeing, you know, a flower, you see you know, these dozens of species that we have. And it's in Shadron is a really unique place because we have the Pine Ridge ecosystem, which is sort of a miniature Black Hills. Um, we have, if you head west out of Shadron, you get into short grass prairie pretty quickly. Um, head east out of Shadron, you get into the sand hills, which is one of the largest contigu contiguous blocks of grassland we have left um, in, in, in North America. Um, head north and you, you get into some really interesting examples of northern mixed grass prairie. So we're at this confluence of, of what we would call, in, in my discipline, we'd call them range types. Um, and it's really, it's really a great place to, to see all of those without having to travel too far. Excellent. Well, I think that's a wonderful question to end on. Yeah, I really like that perspective. Yeah. Thanks. Aaron, thank you for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun. Appreciate it.